All right, Matthew 22, verse 14 says this, For many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, I wasn't here last week, but I, the week before that, we began kind of a lesson on the call of God. And I'd just like to continue. I may not continue next week, but we may pick up this thread at some point. I want you to know that God is a God who calls. And your call is calling you. We need to understand the callings of God. Now, when we hear the word calling, perhaps we instinctively think of the ministry, full-time ministry, or maybe some particular special assignment uh, for the Lord. And that certainly is true, and that is a, a significant part of callings, but by no means the whole matter. Because the first and foremost calling, the most important calling, is the call to salvation. Now, this verse from Matthew 22 is, comes at the end of a parable, which you can read. I, don't, I, don't, I won't take the time tonight. A parable about a wedding feast, a jubilant banquet that was given in honor of a king's son on the occasion of his wedding, the son's wedding. And, of course, this is a parable, a vehicle that Jesus used to, to teach. And the word parable means compare or comparison. So, really, this story about a wedding is compared to our salvation. It's really a story about, not weddings, but about salvation. And it's interesting that the Bible picks up this thread in other places. Did you know that you and I are going to attend the greatest wedding feast that this universe has ever seen? Not in Dimapur, in a better place, in heaven above. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 9, the Apostle John saw a vision of future events unfolding in heaven. So it's, 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 it's a prediction of what's going to happen. And his viewpoint, if you read the book of Revelation from chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 4 onward, is from heaven looking down. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, it's from earth looking up. Uh, and so he says in verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this. So go ahead and get your pen ready. Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, this scene that John is portrayed before John's eyes represents the full and final, and I'm going to use a marriage term, consummation of our redemption. You know, You'll forgive me, I don't want to be too graphic, but you know, just because you come to the church and say I do and sign the certificate, you know, that man and woman have to come together, right? Well, this is kind of a, a parallel to that when the son is ultimately united with his bride. And this is not a symbolic thing, this marriage supper. I take it as an actual, literal event. I read that as an actual, literal event. I remember years ago, I heard the testimony of a Sister Gloria Copeland, wife of Kenneth Copeland, and she said that her brother had passed away at a younger age, and she was very, uh, you know, broken up by that. Who wouldn't be? And, and she said that while she was praying, the Lord gave her a vision. And of course, we have to judge things according to the word, but I think this is according to the word. And she saw a huge hall, like with a huge, long table extended, you know, as far as the eye could see, I suppose. And there were place settings being prepared on this table. And she saw her brother who had passed away, and he was carrying like, I don't know, plates and stuff like that. And he was getting ready. And in the vision, she said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, we're getting ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'll see you then. Vision over. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it's interesting, this is still in Revelation 19. But in verse 7, John says there will be or there would be exuberant rejoicing. 
You know, not just a little bit of a happy little uh, happy clappy moment, but, but wild rejoicing, glorious rejoicing, because he says the bride has made herself ready. And in verse 8, he says she is clothed in fine linen, clean and dazzling, which symbolizes the righteous deeds of the saints. Just a thought here, it might help you. I have seen in recent times some people who uh, have taught that this, this bride, the bride of Christ, actually, they say it's, it's the new Jerusalem. And that's based on Revelation 21:2. But without looking at that verse right now, that's a misread of that verse, in my opinion. Then again, some Catholics think that the, the bride of Christ refers to uh, nuns who have taken a vow of chastity, and, that's, and they think that's what that means. But notice here he said that the, 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 the linen clothing, clean and white and dazzling, is the righteous deeds of the saints. But see, in Scripture, the word saints always refers to Christians. Not some special Christians, just ordinary, if I can use that word, believers those who have received Christ. So the bride of Christ is not a city, and it's not a religious order. Monasticism, the, 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 the idea of having uh, monasteries with monks, and that didn't start till around the fourth century AD. That certainly was not something that John knew anything about when he wrote the book of Revelation. That was foreign to their thinking, you see. No, the, the bride of Christ is the church. It's you. And so, you know, the bride, if you think about it, the bride in any wedding is the one. Right? When, when we, just, we just had a wedding here recently. We, we had them all the time. And, you know, the big moment is not when the flower girl walks down the aisle. That is nice. And sometimes the ring boy, that's cute. But that's not the big moment. The big moment is not when the photographer clicks off a few uh, shots. The big moment is not when the piano player or, uh, or, or a singer leads us in a song. That's all great and wonderful. The big moment is when the bride walks in the room. That's what we say typically we do, most churches do, many churches do. Let's all rise. We are the bride. We're going to come down the aisle, so to speak. And the angels are going to say, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Thank you for your enthusiasm. I said, this is the moment. Of course, some people, some people are so self-centered. In every wedding, they want to be the bride. And in every funeral, they want to be the corpse. <laughs> but here, here is our moment to shine for Christ. Amen. But notice John said the bride has made herself ready. That's interesting that he would say that. Why does the bride, which is the church, why does the bride need to get ready? Well, think about it. It's just common sense. Every woman, it doesn't matter like what state she's from, you know, her tribal community background, ethnicity, whatever, social standing, it doesn't matter. Every woman, you, you, you tell me if I'm wrong. Every woman wants to look her best on the wedding day. Can the, do, the, do the women agree with that? Oh, yeah. what, what woman wakes up, rolls out of bed, quickly runs to the church so she can walk down the aisle with her hair and her curlers and, you know, just wearing her bed clothes? No, no way. Although I've seen some brides that almost look like they did that, but not... <laughs> But they're not here today. Amen. Notice in the, in the King James Version, it says, For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. However, however, in the Greek language, the word righteousness in this verse means righteous deeds, righteous acts. That's exactly what it means in the Greek language. You see, we are right in the sight of God. We are restored to God. We can stand before him cleansed without any sense of condemnation because we're saved. 
by His grace. But we should prepare to meet the Lord by right living. You understand? See? A bride is a bride because the groom has proposed to her and, and she has accepted that. But every bride is expected to do her best, to look her best, to be her, her best on that day. Right? Every groom would be embarrassed if she just didn't even bother to comb her hair or brush her, didn't bother. I, just, I don't care. I didn't want to brush my teeth this morning. I hope you don't mind. I do, you know. And <laughs> right? Amen. So we want to look presentable on that day. So you can think of it this way. The good deeds that we do, not to get saved, but because we are saved, are the ornaments and the adornment of the church. Now, some Christians are going to get married in their pajamas. Some Christians are going to show up with a tank top and boxers. Why? Because they ain't got no, they ain't no good works. They ain't nothing. They ain't done anything right. They just got saved. Some people on the, on the deathbed, save me, Lord. Boom. Okay, show up. Here I am in my pajama. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no righteous deeds for them. Oh, thank you for your enthusiasm. Hallelujah. Now, in the Gospels, especially before going to the cross, Jesus, he told several parables and the main point of many of them is be ready. Be ready for his return. The bridegroom is coming. The groom is coming. So be ready to meet him. For example, in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, you also must be ready. He's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to sinners that they need to get ready. He's talking to his followers. They need to stay ready. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So what does that mean? That means when things are looking really bad and everybody says this is the end, it's not. Because he says he's coming when you don't expect it. I suppose that means when it looks like yeah, everything's pretty good right now, everything's coming along pretty good, everything's going great, that's when he might come. Amen? So whatever date you think he's going to come, I think we can say with certainty, you're wrong about that. Don't even worry about that. Your job is not to try to fix the date. Your job is to stay ready and stay focused. Hallelujah. Amen. Stay faithful. In other words, don't let your lamp go out. Stay ready. Amen. So the marriage supper of the lamb, which is something that John speaks of in the book of Revelation. As I said, I believe that's an actual, literal event, not just a symbol, but an actual event. That is probably also what Jesus was referring to in these verses in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, he says, I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at table. See, in the first century, they didn't sit on chairs at a table. Their tables were low to the ground, and they laid on the floor, like in the Last Supper. They did that. He means they're going to be seated at the table, recline at table to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many times when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he actually means heaven itself. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. What's that? That's Demopor. In that place, there will be weeping and load shedding. Now, notice this, <laughs> gnashing of teeth. When he talks about the sons of the kingdom, you might be alarmed. You might think, oh, no, some of us are not going to make it. But he actually is not referring to Christians when he says this. He's referring to the Jewish people. See, coming from east and west, he means relative to Israel, that they're not in Israel. They're coming from other nations of the world. So that means that many people from Gentile nations will be saved. Non-Jewish people will be saved. They'll be raptured, caught up into heaven to join in this glorious celebration. While many of the Jewish people, the people that God chose and with whom he originally made a covenant, 
will perish. Darkness, gnashing of teeth is Jesus' way of saying Hades, not going to heaven, right? That's very interesting. Now, look again at Revelation 19.9. I'm still talking about called, and I'll show you why. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the word invited in Greek means to be called. Same word. Uh, uh, same basic meaning, I should say, called. Now, let's go a little deeper. I think you can understand this. I'll say it slowly. This word invited, called, in this verse, is what we call, it's it's in Greek grammar, it's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense. And what does that mean? It means it's an action that was completed in the past, but the results of that action continue till the present. They were, they, they were called and they remain called. See? And, and um, God called you. And you are the called. We, we kind of convey, convey the same thought when we say, I am saved. Not I'm going to be saved, but I am saved. Well, that would be almost the same thought, like perfect tense. I was saved from my sins the moment I received Christ on that day when I heard and believed. And I remain and continue saved even now. That's the idea. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So here is my point. We are the called of God. And it would be good for you to think of yourself in that way. I am the called. I am the called. Praise the Lord. So again, in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast... Those who were first invited by the king, those in his kingdom, refused. They rejected the offer. So the king sent his servants huh, to, um, to find others. Now those who rejected the, the call, rejected the invitation, again it represents the Jewish people who by and large have rejected Christ. And, and, and so the king instructed his servants, as I said, to go to the streets and invite as many as you find. Anybody you can find. Go here and there, you know, the highways and the byways and the back alleys, you know, and bring them in. So that means that God is calling the nations. His invitation extends to every person. But few are chosen. The chosen are those who responded favorably to the call. The ones who said, yes, I'll be there. Yes, I'm coming. So we could say many are invited, but few respond favorably to the call of God. That's certainly true of salvation, and it is also true of every other calling of God. Are you listening to me? Praise the Lord. So if you want to progress and if you want to be blessed, just learn this simple word whenever God speaks to you. Yes. Yes, Lord. He's calling someone to do this. Yes, Lord. He's calling someone to do that. Yes, Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, let's talk about the called. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Are you still here today? Are you having too much fun? Should I calm down a little bit? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1. Okay. Paul, notice the next word, called. Paul called. The word called is found throughout the New Testament. It's a very important part of understanding our salvation, understanding our relationship with God, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, when Paul said he was called, 
to be an apostle, he doesn't mean that that is something he aspired to become one day in the future. See, like some people say, well, I'm called to pastor. Well, are you pastoring now? No, but I'm called to. That's not what he means. He means right now at this moment, I am an apostle. I have already stepped into that. I am functioning in that office. Correct? Amen. And he was invited to that ministry. He did not intrude into that ministry. We could preach a real long sermon right now because a lot of people have no concept of this at all. They see that church do it and they'll say, we'll do it too. They see this person have a successful ministry, they'll say, that's what I'm going to do. No, you cannot barge into the ministry. You must be invited. Spiritually speaking, there's an usher at the door who wants to see your invite. You don't have your invitation card, they'll escort you off the property. Make sure you're called to do what you're doing. I can't emphasize that enough. You know, you need to have a ministry that is based on inspiration and not imitation. See, even if you are called to a similar ministry, that still doesn't mean you have to do it the same way. God's way for you is, is very likely going to be somewhat different than that, maybe very different than that. Amen? So just because, like, well, they're doing it this way, and, man, it's really working, I'll try that. Yeah, but if God didn't call you to that, it's going to flop. A lot of things that we're doing here, you know, in this church and stuff like that, it's not because we think it's a good idea or we're trying to imitate someone on Instagram or something like that. It's because we feel like this is what God would have us do. Right? Hallelujah. All right. Now notice, notice verse 2. Paul called to be an apostle by the will of God. Notice this, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called, there's that word again, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call, there's that word again, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So when he says the people, the believers in Corinth are sanctified, right? Now that's a word that we do here in the, in the church world as part of our, uh, you know, lingo. It's, on the, it's, it's in the Christian dictionary, so to speak. But we don't know what it means. It actually means to be made holy. To be made holy. So here's what you need to know. First thing is, we are holy because we belong to the Lord. When Paul wrote to believers in, in, in the book of Hebrews, he calls them holy brother, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling. He, he, he calls them all holy. Peter says you are a holy generation. We are holy because we belong to the Lord. We are holy because wherever God's presence is, that place is holy. God told Moses, take your shoes off because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Well, it made it holy because God was there. So when I preached in um, one church this weekend, uh, or yeah, one church this weekend, at the door we had to take our shoes off, right? And I thought like, ah, you know, I don't really want to take my shoes off. You know, I just, it's not something I want to do. But everybody had to take their shoes off because, you know, they want to keep the church clean. And I think perhaps their thought is that you should show more respect or reverence to the church like that. But, but you know, you can keep your shoes on tonight. But what I'm saying is that, that the idea was because God is there, this is not an ordinary place. God is in you. And you're not an ordinary person. You are holy. You are holy. See, the Spirit of God makes you holy. That's why you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Can I get a little bit more excitement here tonight? I, I just feel like I'm not feeling the love here tonight. I said, you are holy. Hallelujah. And the word holy also means not ordinary. 
sacred or special. See, like Moses was commanded, make holy anointing oil. And he, God told him, this is only to be used for certain purposes. In other words, you know, uh, Moses' wife could not take that oil, you know, and make some fried rice for Moses' lunch that night. In fact, God said, if you do that, pow, you know, you're going to be in big trouble. It's only for this purpose. It's used exclusively for God. You're holy. You don't belong to the devil. You don't belong to this world, this world system. You belong to God because he bought you. Well, it's my life and I can do what I want. You don't belong to you. If you belong to you, then you need to get saved. Amen. Amen. So you're holy. Praise the Lord. We're not common people. Peter had a vision of a sheet let down by four corners, all these animals. God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. That's what the Lord said to Jeppe too. Rise, Jeppe, kill and eat. But unlike Jeppe, Peter said, no, Lord. <laughs> and I never put anything common in my mouth. And the Lord said to him, what God has cleansed, don't call common. I know a lot of times they're saying, well, I'm just an ordinary person. And I know what you mean as far as society goes and that type of thing. But I don't really like that. I don't think God likes that. You're not an ordinary person. That other fellow, you know, you can't compare yourself to him because he doesn't have inside of him what you have inside of you. You are holy. You, you have been purchased for God's exclusive use, and you're not ordinary. You're an extraordinary person. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And the word sanctify, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, this word is also in the perfect tense. Once again, we were made holy at the moment we receive Christ, and we remain holy to this moment. Yeah, but you know, I've messed up. But you didn't become holy because you never messed up. You became holy because you were washed in the blood. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. And we are holy because it's God's will. We have been invited to partake of His holiness. But those who have been sanctified in Christ should determine to live a sanctified lifestyle. So it's one thing to be holy. It's another thing to live holy. And nobody gets excited. You know, I didn't see anybody jump up and shout glory and run around the building when I said that. But if you really understand what the word holy means, it is something amazing. It's truly amazing. Don't mess with me. This is the temple of God. Don't, you know, the Bible says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. I don't, don't, touch, don't touch the temple of God. Amen? Look at your wife and say, did you hear that? <laughs> Hallelujah. And so, we are holy, but then there's also a continual sanctification process where we, where we live more and more like that. And notice he says, called to be saints. So just like Paul was called to be an apostle, this is not something we aspire to become one day. That's who we are now. I said that's who we are now. The Greek word saint, as you can probably guess, comes from the same word sanctified. A sanctified one. A holy, a holy person. Hallelujah. And notice this, this, this sainthood is not just for the Corinthians, but he went on to say, verse 2, for all who in every place call on the name of the Lord. See, you called on the name of the Lord to be saved. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Not call out the name of the Lord, just to say the name of the Lord. Call on. You're, you're, you're appealing to Him. You're asking Him to save you from sin, to cleanse you, to, to impart into your spirit eternal life. 
Hallelujah. And the word call here is in the present tense. I know I'm giving you a lot of deep stuff, but you know, if you can take it, go ahead. The word call here is in the present tense. It's not just something we once did. It's something we are continually doing. We don't stop calling on the Lord just because we're saved. We continually appeal to Him. We continually reach out to Him. We continually pray to Him. Right? Amen. And again, getting a little technical, a little technical, forgive me. And in Greek we say it's in the middle voice. And what does that mean? It simply means that this is something we ourselves are doing. It's not something that someone else is doing. We ourselves are doing it, and we ourselves experience it. We are the called, and we are calling. The called call. Those who call on the Lord are the called of the Lord. Those who call on the Lord are the called of the Lord. We respond to his callings by calling. Amen. So again, you are a caller. You are one who is continually calling on the Lord. By the way, just a thought, maybe I'm wrong about this, but do you ever say this expression, like if you're going to visit someone, let's call on Brother Zamazama tonight, right? Or, or so-and-so's in the hospital. Well, on the way home, let's call on her. And you mean you're going to visit them. When we call on the Lord, we are people who visit with the Lord. So that means you have an open invitation to be with Him. The door is always opened. Amen? That's not always true of people that you know, right? Right? You know, my grandmother, bless her heart, sweetest person you ever met in your life, super generous person. But you, you didn't, and she, was, she, she, she loved me to pieces. You know, just loved me like nobody else but Jesus, right? But, but you did not want to call on her without advance notice. Why? Because she might not have her teeth in. And I made that mistake years ago. I just showed up at her front door and she showed up without her teeth because she had dentures. She had no real teeth. And it was so unpleasant. I, I, I tried to be real. You know, she said, I, I can't talk to you right now. And I said, oh, yeah, praise the Lord. I can't talk to you either. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, you can always, because he's got his teeth, you can always call on the Lord. Amen. Amen. You're all, in other words, you're always welcome. There's never a bad time. Hey, you, you caught me at a bad time. You caught me. We're really busy right here. We're building the new Jerusalem. Can you come back tomorrow? I'm off on weekends. No, no. He's, it's, you're always welcome. There's never a bad time to call on the Lord. Amen. And, and while I'm on that subject, you know, after a long stretch of not seeing my grandmother, she'd get a little bit, you know, concerned. What's the matter? She would call on me. The phone would ring. And she'd say, I haven't seen you. Where have you been? And I'm like, well, I'm here. Amen? Amen? So I often thought about that. The Lord brought that to my mind that God reminds me of, of my grandmother in that sense that he, he loves your company. That's why he saved you. Not just so you could have a house in glory. That's fine. But so that you could walk with him now and forever. Come on, can I, can I get a little something tonight? I'm, I, I gotta get, give me, somebody help me. Can somebody help me tonight? Am I speaking the truth or not? Come on. Amen. All right, let me change the, turn the corner real quickly. Now, we're talking about we are the called of God. I just want to say this, and there's a reason why I'm saying it. Throughout church history, there has raged an ongoing debate about God's calling on us and our calling on Him. There are those in the church world who contend, they argue, that God has chosen some to be saved and He's chosen some to be lost. And that decision is only based on His sovereignty. That's just the way it is. Too bad. And so 
the thought is that the one whom God has selected to be saved will be saved regardless of what that person actually desires. There are people who believe that God will drag him into heaven kicking and screaming. I don't want to go. Too bad I just grab you by the collar and just pull you into heaven. And that the one whom God has not selected will not be saved regardless of what that person desires. Even though God is begging, uh, even though that person is begging God to save him, too bad you are just destined for hell. It's been predetermined, set in stone. Nobody can do anything about it. In other words, they view salvation purely as not your decision, but your destiny. Now, Charles Finney, you know, more than 100 years ago, Charles Finney was not raised in a Christian home, so he never went to church growing up. And as a young man, he was studying to be an advocate, a lawyer. And he noticed in his textbooks, they often referred to the law of Moses and things, scripture from the Bible. So that, that stirred his curiosity. He started to read the Bible. And he started to go to church, you see. And Finney's conscience, Charles Finney, his conscience was just riddled with guilt. He, he, he knew, he somehow knew, I'm not prepared to meet the judge of the living and the dead. And he found himself unable to pray. He said, my heart seemed like a stone. Many times I would try to pray and nothing. I just had nothing to say. And so his church taught what we might term as old school Calvinism. Like I said, that God has just chosen some people to be saved. And whether they like it or not, even against their will, they are going to be saved. And some people, he's rejected. Whether they like it or not, even against their will, they're going to hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so he, because he had trouble praying, he began to think that, that maybe I'm the damned. You know, that God has rejected me so, and I'm just destined for hell and there's nothing I can do about it. But he could not escape the fact he had this overwhelming desire for God. And so that became so strong in him that one day he decided, I've got to pray. And of course, he, 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 he had very little light, see. And so he, he took a walk in the little town he lived in and he walked toward a wooded area, secluded area, and he made sure that no one saw him. And he found a little quiet place and he, and he began to, he wanted to pray. But he found his heart was just frozen. He couldn't say anything. He had nothing to say. And at that moment he heard a sound and he thought that perhaps someone was coming and might see him. And so he stopped and looked up and kind of hid to make sure that he was not seen. And at that moment, suddenly his heart was, was struck. I'm, I'm ashamed that someone might see me praying to the Almighty God. How proud I am. How foolish and how proud I am that I would be concerned about somebody seeing me praying to a pure and holy God. And at that moment, he said, it's my pride. It's my stinking pride. And that burst the dam, so to speak, and the words flowed out from his heart, and he, he was able to call on the Lord. And he said, there came immediately into his heart a tremendous sense of peace. And that, that feeling that he was lost and that restlessness, that was just gone. In fact, at first he was confused. He thought, maybe I shouldn't be so bold, and, and maybe God has just rejected me. That's why I don't have that conviction anymore. But that wasn't it. He was saved. Hallelujah. And so, um, you know, he went to his church later on and he asked the church members to pray for his wife that she would be saved. And they said, well, Mr. Finney, if she is the elect, if God has chosen her, she will be saved. And if she is not the elect, she won't be saved. In other words, you don't need to pray about it. It's just been decided. But that didn't... That didn't agree with the scriptures as far as Finney could tell. 
And so instead, he went to a nearby schoolhouse and began to tell the people, it's God's will for everybody to be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And throughout that town, people came to Christ, and he, he got invitations to go to other towns. Finney spent 75 years preaching the gospel and brought almost single-handedly revival to America, at least that part of America. Whole towns were converted through his ministry. I mean, the entire town got saved because of his ministry. Are you out there today? Hallelujah. So, in the parable of the wedding, when the initial guests refused, the king did not send an army to kidnap them. He didn't, he didn't grab them kicking and screaming and pull them to the wedding. He said, well, if they don't want to come, then they don't want to come. See? And when the servants were sent to find replacements, the king didn't give them a list. Here are the, here are the people I approve of. No, he just said, whoever, wherever, he even said good or bad, invite them, call them. Amen? So you see, that parable that Jesus told, that alone does not fit the doctrine of predestination in the sense of that old school Calvinism. It doesn't fit. It doesn't agree. And there's thousands of other scriptures that show it doesn't, it doesn't agree. So why are you telling us this? Because today there's been something of a revival or renewed interest in that kind of thinking. Many of the Christian authors that maybe you know about and influencers, they, they definitely lean in that direction. And it's wrong. I'm telling you, it's wrong. It's not scriptural. For example, this is so easy. You don't have to make it complicated. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not wishing or willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Williams translation says, but for all to have an opportunity to repent. What does God want? He, wants, he doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anybody to go to outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. He wants them to have an opportunity to repent. The contemporary English version, because he wants everyone to turn from sin and no one to be lost. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. Who desires what? All people to be saved. Who desires what? All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This makes it abundantly clear that it's God's will for everybody. He wants his house full. We are the servants. And Jesus said to us in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, to every creature. Well, he means everybody. But why didn't he, why didn't he just say everybody? Why did he say the whole creation? Are we going to evangelize the cats and dogs, the trees and the butterflies? Why did he say the whole, all creation, every creature? He just wanted to thwart the idea in your mind that some people are less than human. That every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl is precious in the sight of God and they should be invited. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, are you still here? Check yourself. Make sure your body and soul are still together. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14 says, He called you through our gospel. Let me say this to you. The gospel is not a course in theology. The gospel is not a religious indoctrination. The gospel is an invitation. Years ago, uh, more explicitly, 1987, a couple years ago, I was part of a, I, I joined in, a, in the church I was a part of, I joined an evangelism team. So we went to some rough neighborhoods and talked to some rough characters. You know, some of them look as rough as you. You know, just some real rough looking characters. They look just like Senti. Just made you nervous when you saw him. You just, I don't want to talk to that guy. And, uh, and uh, the, the leader of our team had a handful of gospel tracts. 
And he stood in a parking lot and he waved those tracks and he said, I have free tickets. I have free tickets. Who wants one? And people flocked. And as they came, he handed them and said, free ticket to heaven. Free ticket to heaven. Hallelujah. You see, there are many people, and of course, beyond that, he shared with them how to receive Christ. But many people in the church world today have a knack, have this amazing ability for making what is good sound bad. I said there are many people in the church world today, they have this unusual, uncanny ability to make what is good, like the good news, sound like bad news. They make what is free sound very expensive. And what is joyful to sound sorrowful. And what is simple to sound complicated. It's not complicated. The the servants who invited the people to the wedding feast were not theologians. They were not debaters. They were not philosophers. They were just ordinary people who said, come. Come. Remember the acronym KISS. Keep it simple. The other S stands for stupid. Keep it simple. (laughs) Keep it simple. Amen. Hallelujah. And some of these same people will criticize the man who is getting results in the gospel. Ah, that's a false conversions. Those are false conversions. Ah, that's that easy believism. Um, They're watering down the gospel. But the gospel is simple. And the gospel is good. And the gospel is joyful. And it's not hard. It's actually very easy. You don't have to get a degree from theological cemetery to go to heaven. You just say, yes, I'll accept him. I'll take Jesus. Hallelujah. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we have people who are trying to get degrees who aren't, who haven't even answered the call of salvation yet. God bless you. They think if they can just get another degree and another degree. They have all these degrees but no fire. But, you know, it's, it's responding to the invitation. Years ago, years ago, I hope my mother doesn't hear this, but years ago, my mother in her church took an evangelism course, a very detailed course, a, a course that, 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 that went over a period of weeks and there were books that they had to read, textbooks and, and all kinds of uh, lessons they had to follow and papers and things like that, all about sharing Christ with others. And, and you had to write your testimony, you had to you know, examine it and all these different points of view and opinions and so forth and so on and philosophies. And so one day she's at the table in the house, I was there, and she's studying all her books and papers about evangelism. And my sister, who at that time was probably... I, I don't know, maybe five, six years old. I'm not sure how, how old she was. But she suddenly came in the house with a little boy. And he was actually a Korean boy. And she, she came holding his hand and said, Mommy, guess what? I led Tommy to the Lord. <laughs> and my mother was so astounded. After all, my sister hadn't taken the course, you know. My mother was so astounded, she said, she dropped her pencil and moved her papers and said, well, how did you do that? She said, I asked Tommy, do you want Jesus? And he said, yes. (laughs) And Tommy shook his head vigorously and smiled and said, "Uh uh-huh, amen. Come on, maybe you're just trying to, maybe you're trying to camouflage your fear with academia. Amen. Hallelujah. However, I just have a couple of minutes left, so I can't do all that I want to say. But, However, that's not to say that God is not involved in the calling process. He is. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When he said lifted up, he doesn't mean like when we praise him. Like if we sing songs about him, he's not going to be lifted up from the earth. He's already in heaven. (laughs) He's already exalted. He's not talking about you singing a song. The next verse says, by this he showed by what kind of death he was going to die. He means if I'm hung on the tree, if if I'm crucified on the cross, if I go to the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Notice he didn't say I will force 
all people to come to me, even against their will. He said, I will draw them. In the New Testament, there are, sorry, this is very heavy stuff. But in the New Testament, there are two words, Greek words translated draw. Two words. One of them implies violence. For example, Acts 14, 19, King James Version says, The Jews having stoned Paul. That, that doesn't mean they smoked pot. That means they threw stones at him. Having stoned Paul drew him or dragged him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. That word in Greek implies violence. They didn't ask Paul. They didn't say, hey, please come. No, they, they grabbed hold of him and just pulled him forcibly. The other Greek word does not imply violence or force. That's the word that Jesus used in John 12, 32. In fact, the Message Bible says this, John 12, 32, I will attract everyone to me and gather them around me. He does that because the Holy Spirit has magnetism. He has magnetism. We've had people in this church who during the altar call had no intention of responding, and yet they found themselves just putting their hand up and walking down the aisle. And later they testified, I, I have no idea how that happened. Well, I do. It's the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay, one more point. Uh, can, you take an, can you give me another minute? Are you sure? Some of you say no. How, how many of you will give me at least one minute? Can I see your hand? Yeah, you know. Okay, I think that's about 20 minutes. All right, now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. See, we are the called of God. Now consider your calling. That's an interesting thought. Consider your calling. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, usually when this passage of Scripture is quoted, I always hear it quoted in this way, talking about ministry. The reason I'm a pastor, the reason I'm an evangelist, whatever, is because God chose the foolish things to confound the wise. That's certainly an application. That's true. However, that's not what this passage is talking about. Because he's talking to all the Corinthians and only a few people, or not everybody, is called to the ministry. He's talking about the call of salvation. He's talking about the call of salvation, which is what I'm talking about tonight. And here's something that's really important, and I just have to say it the best I can. When you read this, these verses, on the surface, at, at first glance, it, it looks like Paul is saying that God offers salvation only to the underprivileged. That's what it kind of looks like. He's chosen the weak. He's chosen, you know, those who are nothing. It sounds like God, at first glance, that he's selected only the underprivileged in society. But that contradicts everything the New Testament says. And God is not biased against the wealthy, the influential, and the, and the powerful because the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved or have eternal life? And you know, he said he kept the law, but he said, one thing you like. And the Bible says when Jesus looked at him, he loved him. He didn't say he despised him. You rich kid. I hate you rich kid. You grew up with a silver spoon in your mouth. You know, you don't know what I went through. I'm a carpenter. No, he didn't, he didn't despise people who, who, who grew up with greater resources and influence and things like that. God desires all men to be saved. Amen. I believe when Paul uses the word calling, consider your calling in this passage, I believe he actually means your response to the call of God. In other words, remember who you were when you first believed the gospel. It's not that God is mostly unwilling to save the smart people of the world and the rich and powerful. It's that the smart, the rich, and the powerful are mostly unwilling to believe. 
Are you listening to me? I don't believe in, politically, I don't believe in redistribution of wealth. I don't believe in, you know, take from the rich, give to the poor. I don't believe in uh, social justice, that uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take from the privileged and give to the underprivileged, and everybody will be the same. I don't believe in communism because Scripture doesn't teach that. That he that sows should sow in hope of reaping a harvest. And that he who, who thrashes should also partake of that harvest. But if you take away all people's hope when you do that. The Bible doesn't teach communism. Jesus said in heaven some people will be called great and some people called least. So if you think we're all going to be the same, guess again. Guess again. Well, shouldn't we have, you know, equality? But I'm talking about politically forcibly taking from those. See, think about this. Think about this real quickly. I see you're interested in this. If God was a Marxist, he wouldn't give this church any more money. He'd say, you have enough. Look at this building, all these equipments. You have enough. There's a church down the street. They just have a bamboo thatch house. I'm going to give the money to you. But he doesn't do that. Why not? God doesn't punish people who are in his will trusting him, following his word, and then he doesn't reward those who are not in his will, who are not following his word, who are not listening to his Holy Spirit. I believe in equal opportunities for everyone, but not equal outcomes for everyone. That's biblical. You understand that? So if you're a communist, you're not a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian communist. Marx, Lenin were not godly people. They were atheists. I, when I was in school, I studied the, uh, the Marxist dialectic as part of Russian history courses. The very first assumption of their, their teaching is that there is no God. That's the starting point. You cannot be a Christian communist. That's a contradiction in terms. There may be Christians who have compromised the truth to, to sort of appease communists, but there are no communists who are willing to compromise with Christianity. They're all atheists. And Marx knew that nobody's willing to give up what they have and give to everybody else, so it has to be forced. They have to be forced to do it. They do it at the point of a gun. And by the way, while I'm on the subject, socialism has failed everywhere it's been attempted. Everywhere. It's failed. It's always failed. Here we are in India. Perfect example, 1990, India decided to change from being a basically totally government-controlled Soviet-style economy to a more free market economy. What's happened? Boom. The economy's grown. Every, the rising tide lifts all the boats. If you, don't, if you don't believe that, I suggest you study the Bible a little closer. I suggest you study the Bible a little closer. Perhaps you've been indoctrinated with thinking that's not biblical at all. However, having said that, Spiritually speaking, there is a sense of divine equity. Why? In this chapter, I'm going to finish in just a minute. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is answering an important question, which you need to think about. And that question is this. If the gospel is true, why is it so unpopular? If the gospel is true, why do most people reject it? Why are they not interested in hearing it? And the answer is complicated, but I'll try to make it simple. God's method for saving the world is that the lost would believe the story of the cross, the gospel message. The gospel is the power of God to save. And he intentionally, not by accident, intentionally made it unappealing to our natural sensibilities. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to us who believe, it is the power of God. He did that on purpose. You know, you, you go anywhere, you can talk about all kinds of things, but when you talk about the gospel, suddenly, oh, I don't want to hear about that, and they get all upset. And then I understand that. Why? God purposely did that. Because He wants every man 
to humble himself. Paul says it this way, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He made it intentionally distasteful to our natural way of thinking. The Jews want power. The Greeks want philosophy. And what we're offering to them is something they're not even interested in. He did it. If I was God, I would make the gospel such a thing that, you know, everybody would easily grab it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not that way because there's an issue here. It's the same issue that Charles Finney had, pride. Pride. Water baptism doesn't save us. Water baptism is a, is a testimony of our salvation. But think about water baptism, how humbling that is. Think about how humbling it is even like in a church service to like respond to an altar call. You, you know, you feel awkward. You, you know, and if you come down the aisle or something like that, it, you know, it's just sort of like embarrassing a little bit. It's supposed to be. Can't we just somehow, you know, like maybe I can just like put my finger up. No. You're like Charles Finney. You're ashamed of God. And that's offensive to him. Every vestige of pride must be removed. Water baptism doesn't save you, but think how humbling that is. I mean, I see sometimes pretty, pretty women or nice-looking fellas, and they're going to be water baptized, and they all look so great, you know, like, praise the Lord. They get in the water, <laughs> and then, you know, they, they, they fight it, you know, and everything. You kind of sometimes you have to, you know, if they haven't really been a good believer, you kind of hold them down. <laughs> So you see a few air bubbles come up, you know, <laughs> don't fight it, sister, you know. And when they come out of the water, their, their mascara and makeup is all messed up. Their, their scaredo, uh, hairdo is all messed up, you know. Their clothes are all stuck to them, you know, and it's transparent even. You know, kinda, and it's so, it's so embarrassing. It's supposed to be embarrassing. Think about like when the power of God comes on people to fill them or to heal them, or, or, or to, to impart to them, sometimes it's, it's, it's really embarrassing. I knew that we have some church members and others, you know, it's time for prayer, and they wait till the usher's right behind them. They kind of like, and they want to, they want to elegantly, just, you know, kind of real beautiful. Like just. And I notice people like that really don't get much. But a lot of times, it's just ugly. You're laying there, and your dress is over your head, and I don't know, you know, you're, 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 you're all discombobulated. It's just, you know, it's a mess. You're a mess. It's supposed to be that way. I don't mean to say that I'm intentionally trying to embarrass anyone. I'm just saying that every vestige of pride has to die. It has to die. It has to die. All of that, I'm trying to impress everybody. I wonder what everybody's thinking about me. That's all has to be crucified. Until that time, your heart will be like stone. You'll have a hard time calling on the Lord. You'll have a hard time receiving from the Lord. You'll have a hard time being in the place where God wants to promote you. He will allow this to happen. The gospel itself is intended to humble you. That's why people fight it. They just fight it and they fight it. And eventually they just give in. And sometimes they have to hit rock bottom. You know, they lost their job. You know, their wife ran away with a milkman. And, you know, and they repossessed his scooter and everything like that. A scooty. And, and they're just fighting and fighting. And finally, when everything they once trusted in is gone, friends, family, everything, then they say, oh, God, do you have to hit rock bottom? No, but some people are so hard-headed they won't humble themselves until they do. The called are the surrendered. I surrender. Think about it. So many people unsaved, they're fighting God. So many people who are saved, still fighting God. They're fighting. Some, uh, may I say this? I feel like some of you are still fighting the will of God for your life. I've been there. There are things that I deal with, too. You know, I mean, sure, everybody does. You're still fighting the will of God. Fighting. It's my way. No, it's not what I want. And, and you're not going to go anywhere. You're going to be stuck. And, and you may hit rock bottom to finally say, a broken man, and say, 
before you can really trust in God, you have to stop trusting yourself. When we, when we worship God, we lift up our hands. Why? Well, when the police are chasing a criminal and they want to arrest him, that man lifts up his hands. What does that mean? I surrender. I'm not going to run from you anymore. I'm not going to fight you. It's over. Come and take me. That's why some people in church, they never lift their hands. Because they're still struggling, still fighting. But this is the first calling. If you're going to fight God every call, you're not going to go very far. Something has to die. Something has to die in us. And one thing is our pride. I'll never be embarrassed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How about you? I'm sure you're a Wednesday night people. You must agree with that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. I surrender. I surrender to the call of God for my life. It's going to be your way. Hallelujah. When you stand, like I'm standing here, everybody takes a pot shot at you. Everybody, you know, uh, makes fun of you, the way you dress, what you said, the way you comb your hair. And it's, it's really embarrassing. And here I am by myself, me and the Holy Ghost. It's all of you, just me. But if you, if you can't just, just put away all sense of that pride, you'll never stand here. Amen? You're going to have to become a fool for Christ.